0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Tomahol. Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Part 4th, Chapter 4. Phillotson was sitting up late, as was often his custom, trying to get together the materials for his long-neglected hobby of Roman antiquities. For the first time since reviving the subject, he felt a return of his old interest in it. He forgot time and place, and when he remembered himself and ascended to rest, it was nearly two o'clock. His preoccupation was such that, though he now slept on the other side of the house, he mechanically went to the room that he and his wife had occupied when he first became a tenant of Old Grove Place, which since his differences with Sue had been hers exclusively. He entered and unconsciously began to undress. There was a cry from the bed and a quick movement. Before the schoolmaster had realized where he was, he perceived Sue starting up half-awake, staring wildly, and springing out upon the floor on the side away from him, which was towards the window. This was somewhat hidden by the canopy of the bedstead, and in a moment he heard her flinging up the sash. Before he had thought that she meant to do more than get air, she had mounted upon the sill and leapt out. She disappeared in the darkness, and he heard her fall below. Phillotson, horrified, ran downstairs, striking himself sharply against the newel in his haste. Opening the heavy door, he ascended the two or three steps to the level of the ground, and there on the gravel before him lay a white heap. Phillotson seized it in his arms, and bringing Sue into the hall, seated her on a chair, where he gazed at her by the flapping light of the candle which he had set down in the draught on the bottom stair. She had certainly not broken her neck. She looked at him with eyes that seemed not to take him in, and though not particularly large in general, they appeared so now. She pressed her side and rubbed her arm as if conscious of pain, then stood up, averting her face in evident distress at his gaze. Thank God you are not killed, though it's not for want of trying. Not much hurt, I hope? Her fall, in fact, had not been a serious one, probably owing to the lowness of the old rooms and to the high level of the ground without. Beyond a scraped elbow and a blow on the side, she had apparently incurred little harm. "'I was asleep, I think,' she began, her pale face still turned away from him. "'And something frightened me. A terrible dream. I thought I saw you—' The actual circumstance seemed to come back to her, and she was silent. Her cloak was hanging at the back of the door, and the wretched Phillotson flung it around her. Shall I help you upstairs, he asked drearily. for the significance of all this sickened him of himself and of everything. No, thank you, Richard. I am very little hurt. I can walk. You ought to lock your door, he mechanically said, as if lecturing in school. Then no one could intrude, even by accident. I have tried. It won't lock. All the doors are out of order. The aspect of things was not improved by her admission. She ascended the staircase slowly, the waving light of the candle shining on her. Phillotson did not approach her or attempt to ascend himself till he had heard her enter her room. Then he fastened up the front door and, returning, sat down on the lower stairs, holding the newel with one hand and bowing his face into the other. Thus he remained for a long, long time, a pitiable object enough to one who had seen him. Till, raising his head and sighing a sigh, which seemed to say that the business of his life must be carried on, whether he had a wife or no, he took the candle and went upstairs to his lonely room on the other side of the landing. No further incident touching the matter between them occurred till the following evening when, immediately school was over, Phillotson walked out of Shaston, saying he required no tea and not informing Sue where he was going. He descended from the town level by a steep road in a northwesterly direction, and continued to move downwards till the soil changed from its white dryness to a tough brown clay. He was now on the low alluvial beds, where Duncliff is the traveller's mark and cloudy stars a-rolling dark. More than once he looked back in the increasing obscurity of evening. Against the sky was Shaston, dimly visible. On the gray-topped height the palador as pale day wore away, William Barnes. The new-lit lights from its windows burnt with a steady shine as if watching him, one of which windows was his own. Above it he could just discern the pinnacled tower of Trinity Church. The air down here, tempered by the thick damp bed of tenacious clay, was not as it had been above, but soft and relaxing, so that when he had walked a mile or two he was obliged to wipe his face with his handkerchief leaving duncliff hill on his left he proceeded without hesitation through the shade as a man goes on night or day in a district over which he has played as a boy he had walked altogether about four and a half miles where stour receives her strength from six clear fountains red Drayton, when he crossed a tributary of the stour and reached ledenton a little town of three or four thousand inhabitants where he went on to the boys' school and knocked on the door of the master's residence. A boy pupil teacher opened it and to Phillotson's inquiry if Mr. Gillingham was at home replied that he was, going at once off to his own house and leaving Phillotson to find his way in as he could. He discovered his friend putting away some books from which he had been giving evening lessons. The light of the paraffin lamp fell on Phillotson's face, pale and wretched by contrast with his friend's, who had a cool, Practical look. They had been schoolmates in boyhood and fellow students at Wintonchester Training College many years before this time. Glad to see you, Dick. But you don't look well, nothing the matter? Phillotson advanced without replying, and Gillingham closed the cupboard and pulled up beside his visitor. Why, you haven't been here, let me see, since you were married. I called, you know, but you were out, and upon my word, it is such a climb after dark that i have been waiting till the days are longer before lumpering up again i am glad you didn't wait however though well trained and even proficient masters they occasionally used a dialect word of their boyhood to each other in private i have come george to explain to you my reasons for taking a step that i am about to take so that you at least will understand my motives if other people question them any when as they may indeed certainly will but anything is better than the present condition of things. God forbid that you should ever have such an experience as mine. Sit down. You don't mean anything wrong between you and Mrs. Phillotson. I do. My wretched state is that I have a wife I love who not only does not love me, but... But... Well, I won't say. I know her feeling. I should prefer hatred from her. Shish and the sad part of it is that she is not so much to blame as I. She was a pupil teacher under me, as you know, and I took advantage of her inexperience and told her out for walks and got her to agree to a long engagement before she well knew her own mind. Afterwards she saw somebody else, but she blindly fulfilled her engagement. Loving the other? Yes, it was a curious, tender solicitude, seemingly. So her exact feeling for him is a riddle to me and to him too i think possibly to herself she is one of the oddest creatures i ever met however i have been struck with these two facts the extraordinary sympathy or similarity between the pair he is her cousin which perhaps accounts for some of it they seem to be one person split in two and with her unconquerable aversion to myself as a husband even though she may like me as a friend tis too much to bear longer she has conscientiously struggled against it but to no purpose i cannot bear it i cannot i can't answer her arguments she has read ten times as much as i her intellect sparkles like diamonds while mine smolders like brown paper she's one too many for me she'll get over it good now never It is, but I won't go into it. There are reasons why she never will. At last she calmly and firmly asked if she might leave and go to him. The climax came last night when, owing to my entering her room by accident, she jumped out of window. So strong was her dread of me. She pretended it was a dream, but that was to soothe me. Now when a woman jumps out of window without caring whether she breaks her neck or no, she's not to be mistaken and this being the case i have come to a conclusion that it is wrong to so torture a fellow creature any longer and i won't be the inhuman wretch to do it cost what it may but you'll let her go and with her lover whom with is her matter i shall let her go and with him certainly if she wishes i know i may be wrong I know I can't logically or religiously defend my concession to such a wish of hers or harmonize it with the doctrines I was brought up in. Only I know one thing. Something within me tells me I am doing wrong in refusing her. I, like other men, profess to hold that if a husband gets such a so-called preposterous request from his wife, the only course that can possibly be regarded as right and proper and honorable in him is to refuse it, and put her virtually under lock and key, and murder her lover, perhaps. But is that essentially right, and proper, and honorable, or is it contemptibly mean and selfish? I don't profess to decide. I simply am going to act by instinct, and let principles take care of themselves. If a person who has blindly walked into a quagmire cries for help, I am inclined to give it, if possible. But, you see, there's the question of neighbors and society. What will happen if everybody? Oh, I am not going to be a philosopher any longer. I only see what's under my eyes. Well, I don't agree with your instinct, Dick, said Gillingham gravely. I am quite amazed to tell you the truth that such a sedate, plodding fellow as you should have entertained such a craze for a moment. You said when I called that she was puzzling and peculiar. I think you are. Have you ever stood before a woman who you know to be intrinsically a good woman while she has pleaded for release, been the man she has knelt to and implored indulgence of? I am thankful to say I haven't. Then I don't think you are in a position to give an opinion. I have been that man, and it makes all the difference in the world if one has any manliness or chivalry in him. I had not the remotest idea, living apart from women as I have done for so many years, that merely taking a woman to church and putting a ring upon her finger could, by any possibility, involve one in such a daily, continuous tragedy as that now shared by me and her. Well, I admit some excuse for letting her leave you, provided she kept to herself, but to go attended by a cavalier, that makes a difference. Not a bit. Suppose, as I believe, that she would rather endure her present misery than to be made to promise to keep apart from him. All that is a question for herself. It is not the same thing at all as the treachery of living on with a husband and playing him false. However, she has not distinctly implied living with him as wife, though I think she means to. And to the best of my understanding, it is not an ignoble, merely animal feeling between the two. That is the worst of it, because it makes me think their affection will be enduring. I did not mean to confess it to you that in the first jealous weeks of my marriage, before I had come to my right mind, I hid myself in the school one evening when they were together there, and I heard what they said. I am ashamed of it now, though I suppose I was only exercising a legal right. I found from their manner that an extraordinary affinity or sympathy entered into their attachment, which somehow took away all flavor of grossness. Their supreme desire is to be together, to share each other's emotions and fancies and dreams. Platonic? Well, no. Chelian would be nearer to it. They remind me of, what are their names, Leon and Scythna, also of Paul and Virginia a little. The more I reflect, the more entirely I am on their side. But if people did as you want to do, there'd be a general domestic disintegration. The family would no longer be the social unit. Yes, I am all abroad, I suppose, said Phillotson sadly. I was never a very bright reasoner, you remember. And yet, I DON'T SEE WHY THE WOMAN AND THE CHILDREN SHOULD NOT BE THE UNIT WITHOUT THE MAN. BY THE LORD, HARRY! MATRIARCHY? DOES SHE SAY ALL THIS TOO? OH, NO. SHE LITTLE THINKS I HAVE OUTSUED SUE IN THIS, ALL IN THE LAST TWELVE HOURS. IT WILL UPSET ALL RECEIVED OPINION HEREABOUT. GOOD GOD, WHAT WILL SHASTON SAY? I DON'T SAY THAT IT WON'T. I DON'T KNOW i don't know as i say i am only a feeler not a reasoner now said gillingham let us take it quietly and have something to drink over it he went under the stairs and produced a bottle of cider wine of which they drank a rummer each i think you're a rafted and not yourself he continued do go back up and make up your mind to put up with a few whims but keep her i hear on all sides that she's a charming young thing Ah, yes, that's the bitterness of it. Well, I won't stay. I have a long walk before me. Gillingham accompanied his friend a mile on his way, and at parting expressed his hope that this consultation, singular as its subject was, would be the renewal of their old comradeship. Stick to her, were his last words flung into the darkness after Phillotson, from which his friend answered, but when Phillotson was alone under the clouds of night, and no sound was audible but that of the purling tributaries of the Stour, he said, So, Gillingham, my friend, you had no stronger arguments against it than those. I think she ought to be smacked and brought to her senses. That's what I think, murmured Gillingham, as he walked back alone. <laughs> the next morning came, and at breakfast Phillotson told Sue, You may go, with whom you will. I absolutely and unconditionally agree. Having once come to this conclusion, it seemed to Phillotson more and more indubitably the true one. His mild serenity at the sense that he was doing his duty by a woman who was at his mercy, almost overpowered his grief at relinquishing her. Some days passed, and the evening of their last meal together had come. A cloudy evening with wind, which indeed was very seldom absent in this elevated place. How permanently was imprinted upon his vision, that look of her as she glided into the parlor to tea, a slim, flexible figure, a face strained from its roundness, and marked by the pallors of restless days and nights, suggesting tragic possibilities quite at variance with her times of buoyancy. A trying of this morsel and that, and an inability to eat either. Her nervous manner, begotten of a fear lest he should be injured by her course, might have been interpreted by a stranger as displeasure that Phillotson intruded his presence on her for the few brief minutes that remained. You had better have a slice of ham or an egg or something with your tea. You can't travel on a mouthful of bread and butter. She took the slice he helped her to, and they discussed as they sat trivial questions of housekeeping such as where you would find the key of this or that cupboard, what little bills were paid, and what not. I am a bachelor by nature, as you know, Sue, he said, in a heroic attempt to put her at her ease, so that being without a wife will not really be irksome to me, as it might be to other men who have had one a little while. I have, too, this grand hobby in my head of writing the Roman Antiquities of Wessex, which will occupy all my spare hours. If you will send me some of the manuscript to copy at any time as you used to, I will do it with so much pleasure, she said with amiable gentleness. I should like to be some help to you still, as a friend. Phillotson mused and said, No, I think we ought to be really separate if we are to be at all and for this reason that I don't wish to ask you any questions, and particularly wish you not to give me information as to your movements or even your address. Now, what money do you want? You must have some, you know. Oh, of course, Richard, I couldn't think of having any of your money to go away from you with. I don't want any either. I have enough of my own to last for a long while, and Jude will let me have I would rather not know anything about him, if you don't mind. You are free, absolutely, and your course is your own. Very well. But I'll just say that I have packed only a change or two of my own personal clothing and one or two little things besides that are my very own. I wish you would look into my trunk before it is closed. Besides that, I have only a small parcel that will go into Jude's portmanteau. Of course, I will do no such thing as examine your luggage. I wish you would take three-quarters of the household furniture. I don't want to be bothered with it. I have a sort of affection for a little of it that belonged to my poor mother and father, but the rest you are welcome to whenever you like to send for it. That I shall never do. You go by the 6.30 train, don't you? It is now quarter to six. You, You don't seem very sorry I am going, Richard. Oh, no, perhaps not. I like you much for how you have behaved. It is a curious thing that directly I have begun to regard you as not my husband, but as my old teacher. I like you. I won't be so affected as to say I love you because you know I don't, except as a friend. But you do seem that to me. Sue was for a few moments a little tearful at these reflections, and then the station omnibus came round to take her up. Phillotson saw her things put on top, handed her in, and was obliged to make an appearance of kissing her as he wished her good-bye, which she quite understood and imitated. From the cheerful manner in which they parted, the omnibus man had no other idea than that she was going for a short visit. When Phillotson got back into the house, he went upstairs and opened the window in the direction the omnibus had taken. Soon the noise of its wheels died away. He came down then, his face compressed like that of one bearing pain. He put on his hat and went out, following by the same route for nearly a mile. Suddenly turning round, he came home. He had no sooner entered than the voice of his friend Gillingham greeted him from the front room. "'I could make nobody hear. So, finding your door open, I walked in and made myself comfortable. I said I would call, you remember?' "'Yes.' I am much obliged to you, Gillingham, particularly for coming tonight. How is Mrs.? She is quite well. She is gone. Just gone. That's her teacup that she drank out of only an hour ago, and that's the plate she... Phillotson's throat got choked up, and he couldn't go on. He turned and pushed the tea things aside. Have you had any tea, by the by? He asked presently in a renewed voice. No. Yes, never mind, said Gillingham, preoccupied. Gone, you say, she is? Yes. I would have died for her, but I wouldn't be cruel to her in the name of the law. She is, as I understand, gone to join her lover. What they are going to do, I cannot say. Whatever it may be, she has my full consent to. There was a stability, a ballast, in Phillotson's pronouncement, which restrained his friend's comment. "'Shall I leave you?' he asked. "'No, no. "'It is a mercy to me that you have come. "'I have some articles to arrange and clear away. "'Would you help me?' Gillingham assented, and having gone to the upper rooms, the schoolmaster opened drawers and began taking out all Sue's things that she had left behind, and laying them in a large box. "'She wouldn't take all I wanted her to,' he continued. But when I made up my mind to her going to live in her own way, I did make up my mind. Some men would have stopped at an agreement to separate. I've gone into all that, and don't wish to argue it. I was, and am, the most old-fashioned man in the world on the question of marriage. In fact, I have never thought critically about its ethics at all. But certain facts stared me in the face, and I couldn't go against them. They went on packing silently. When it was done, Phillotson closed the box and turned the key. There, he said, to adorn her in somebody else's eyes, never again in mine. End of chapter 4